Hi guys, uh, Pastor Greg Corcoran here from Battlefield Baptist Church. Uh, pray that this sermon is a blessing, an encouragement, and a challenge to you in your walk with the Lord. Additionally, I just wanted to say that if we here at Battlefield can ever be a blessing to you, please don't hesitate to contact us. And the best way to do that is through our website at battlefieldbaptist.org. Again, I pray this sermon blesses you, encourages you, and uh, that you'll fall more in love with God, more in love with his word, and more in love with people. Would you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, we're thankful that you are good. We're thankful for your word, God. We're thankful for this opportunity we have to worship you as we dive into it. We're thankful that we live in a place where we can still do things like we did this morning and like we're going to do. We can do it freely without the fear of persecution. Father, I pray that um, we wouldn't take that lightly this morning. I pray that you would speak this morning in spite of my inadequacies. I pray that your name would be glorified right now through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll find our text for this morning in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 5. Um, I will meet you there. Joshua is about victorious living. And so for the Christian today, we could even take it a step further. And we could add that the book of Joshua is about victorious Christian living in Christ. In chapters 1 through 5, we see the children of Israel crossing over the Jordan River. Conquering the enemy in chapters 6 through 12 and claiming the inheritance finally in chapters 13 through 24. But before the children of Israel can conquer their enemy and lay claim to the land that has been promised, there are some preparations in their heart that they need to make. And that is in part what our chapter here is in, uh, in Joshua is really all about this morning. Spiritual preparation. And in that, in this chapter, we find the biblical principle, consecration before conquest. Worship before warfare. You know that every day you wake up, Christian, you're in a battle. I mean, I'd venture to say that half of you or more were engaged in spiritual warfare this morning before you even stepped foot through these doors, whether you knew it or not. Like, you didn't think all the circumstances, all the, the chaos happening in your house this morning that led to the thought, maybe it'd be easier if we just stayed home this morning. You, you didn't think that that was a coincidence this morning, did you? Right, and that's why Paul says in Ephesians 6.10, he says, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You need to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We're in a battle. And he says it's not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Right, Paul tells us that we need to have a time of spiritual preparation, right? And that is in part of what Joshua 5 is all about. Personal consecration. See, consecration is about dedication, right? It is the complete dedication of a person to an object or a specific purpose, 
But the word itself literally means associated with the sacred. In Joshua 5, the children of Israel are going to have to consecrate themselves. They are going to have to set themselves apart for a specific purpose. They are going to need to associate themselves with the sacred in order to spiritually prepare for the battles that lie ahead. Consecration before conquest. And so the book of Joshua is about victorious living. And for the Christian, it's about living victoriously in Christ. And Joshua 5 is also going to give us some essentials when it comes to living victoriously. And those will serve as our points for this morning. And the first one simply is this, cross over. Cross over. Now this has a lot to do with what's already happened in Joshua. But that's why when we get to chapter 5, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass... When all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel, until we were passed over, that their heart melted. Neither was their spirit in them anymore, because of the children of Israel. Now remember what's just happened two chapters ago in Joshua 3, Right, the Lord's held back the raging waters of the Jordan River in spectacular fashion, making it possible for the children of Israel to cross over now from the east to the west side of the Jordan. They are now in Canaan, the promised land. Scholars estimate that it's between one and two million people that Joshua was responsible for getting across the Jordan. And listen, I I believe this event really happened. I believe it was very literally happened, right? But it's also a type. It's a picture, if you will. From crossing over from a place of defeat now to a place of victory. Right? The place of death to now a place of life. In other words, crossing over the Jordan becomes a type, a picture of leaving the old life and entering in and embracing a new life. So what happens when they cross over? Well, remember what we just read. The nation has arrived on the other side of the Jordan, right? And their crossing is miraculous. And so much so, so much so that it sends a message to the inhabitants of the the land. If you remember Rahab's testimony, right, uh, to the two spies back in chapter 2, we know that they were already scared. Um, But now their fears have totally demoralized them. Right, and honestly, like this would have seemed like the perfect time for them to act. This would seem like the perfect time to mobilize the army and immediately go into Jericho. I mean, the people of Israel and their, their recent successes that they've had, they, they, are, they are united and following the Lord. And the people of the land, they are paralyzed by fear. Right, from a human perspective, now we should act. Now is the time to go. Right, the morale of the people of Canaan is, is at an all-time low, and the morale of the Israelites is, is at an all-time high. Much like it was for many of us when we got saved. You know, I've heard countless stories in my life of people when they get saved, and whether it's out of fear or a lack of understanding, their family and their friends who were not saved, um, who just didn't get it, and they just begin to ridicule them. Right? Or make fun of them. 
or put them down or tell them they're wasting their time. My own brother, when he got saved, I remember people would call him from his old life and they, they'd call and they'd ask, hey, man, you want to go out or something? And he'd say, no, you know, I, I got saved and I'm trying to make some changes in my life. And they begin to ridicule him, cuss at him even, and hang up on him. They were scared. And can I tell you something? It wasn't just your family and your friends that were scared when you got saved. It was Satan. It was Satan and his army of demons as well. The Bible tells us that he's the accuser of the brethren. He's a liar. He's a thief. His mission is only to, to kill and to destroy. So think about it. When, when you made the commitment to receive Jesus Christ into your life, right? when you made the commitment to receive him as Lord and, and Savior, darkness is now behind you and light is in front of you. Death is behind you and life is now in front of you. Judgment behind you. Right, and because of their fear, now would be the time to strike, it would seem. However, God's thoughts and his ways are higher than that of man. Joshua was getting his orders from the Lord. Right, not the military experts. Can I tell you something? We, we do well to take extra caution to make sure that the expert advice we are following doesn't contradict the will or word of the Lord. Right? The conquest of the land was going to be the victory of God, not the victory of Joshua, not the victory of Israel. It wasn't going to be the emotions of the enemy or the expertise of the, the, the Jewish army that was going to give Israel the victory, but rather the presence and the blessing of the Lord. Now remember, your old life is filled with enslavement to sin. Your old life was full of complaining and fear. Your old life was marked from turning from God and unbelief. And really, we could go on and on covering the, the, the wilderness wanderings, the distrust, the defeat, the rebellion, the immorality, the worldliness, the lawlessness, the worship of self, and every other form of idolatry that there is in the world. But now, God's calling you to be different. Right? And they are in the land, God's land. It's the land of new beginnings and of conquest and of victory and peace and security and protection. God's provision, his, his abundance and fullness and satisfaction in experiencing his presence in the presence of the Lord and in his blessings. And I hope that you can see the type this morning, the picture of your own life, right? When you got saved, it was supposed to be this new beginning in your own life. Much like crossing over the Jordan was for Israel. Instead of emptiness, fullness. Instead of depression, joy. And again, you think now's the time to attack, but, but God knew that they needed to be prepared spiritually for what lie ahead. And so clearly victory must begin with crossing over the land. And that's why we're spending so much time just really trying to stress this first sentence. Because unless you've crossed over today, everything else that we say is useless to you. Everything else that I said will be meaningless. It will be nothing if you've never known what it means to know Jesus. Right? If you don't know him or love him, right? Like to, to experience the love of him in your heart, if you've never left the old life, it's going to be impossible for you to embrace the new. Right? And in order to cross over the land you, and to live a life of victory, you have to leave the life of defeat. Ephesians 2 verse 2, Paul said, Wherein in time past you walked according to the, the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air. It's the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. See, you used to be different. 
But now things have changed. And so we get to the second essential. Cut away sin. Joshua 5, verse 2. It says, at the time, at that time, the Lord said unto Joshua, make these sharp knives, or maybe um, your translation says flint knives. And circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of foreskins. I understand. I too think they could have come up with a better name. Pike's Peak. Uh, Hebrew Hill. Just, we're just throwing out a few. We can brainstorm and keep coming up with better stuff all day. However, it does give us a good glimpse of what they did there. Right, and then in verse 4, it begins to tell us why. Pick up in verse 4. It says, this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. That all the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness, by the way, after they came out of Egypt. It says, now all the people that came out were circumcised, but all the people that were born in the wilderness, by the way, as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the people that were men of war, which had come out of Egypt, were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord. Unto whom the Lord sware, swore that he would not show them the land, which the Lord swore unto their fathers that he would give us a land that floweth with milk and honey. And their children, whom he had raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them by the way. Why hadn't they circumcised their children? Or why hadn't they honored the covenant of Abraham and, and Jacob and Moses? It's because they were living in rebellion and unbelief. Right? And impartial obedience. See, when rebellion begins to set in and disobedience sets in, right? unbelief sets in, they begin to walk away from the promises that God had made to them. And in their unbelief and in their disobedience and their refusal to enter into the land that the Lord had sworn unto their fathers, they begin to adopt the ways of the world. They didn't honor and obey God and walk in submission and in obedience. So try to understand with me what's happening here this morning. Now they have a new, fresh willingness to cross over into the land, right, and live a life of, in abundance and obedience and submission to the Lord. And in that, they would have to renew their covenant. See, Israel was a covenant nation. This is a privilege um, that God had given no other nation on earth. But God gave his covenant to Abraham when he called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees. We see that in Genesis 12. And he sealed that covenant with a sacrifice then in Genesis 15, thus making this covenant, this contract, um, official. Then God gave circumcision as a sign or a token of that covenant to Abraham and his descendants. And you can read that account in Genesis 17. That's why Genesis 17, 11 says, And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. Listen, God, I'm not trying to complain. I thank you so much for the promise you just made with me, God, and the covenant. But Noah got a rainbow. 
I mean, a, maybe a unicorn or something. Like, could we just, okay, pick up in verse 8, and it came to pass. And when they had done circumcising all the people, that they abode in their places in the camp until they were whole. Now, some could have argued that, listen, if there's ever a time that we should not circumcise, it would be right now. We're in a brand new land, right? We're vulnerable now because we too are on the other side of the river, right? We're, we're in a new land with new enemies. And, and listen, if we cut off our forces, it's going to make us, it's going to make us vulnerable, even physically disabled. This is not just... It's not just a religious rite that separates them from the rest of the nations. Remember part of the point of circumcision as a whole. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were going to embrace this covenant and it was going to be a sign or a mark in their flesh, a symbol of their relationship between them and the God of heaven. Other nations practice circumcision, you can be sure of that. But it lacked the spiritual meaning that it did for the Jewish people. See, circumcision was for them and is an outward symbol of a spiritual condition where the flesh is cut away. Right? It points to what God wants to do in the human heart. And you'll find this principle. It's in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Moses said in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, he says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Quit being so stubborn, he says. Chapter 30 goes on to say, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou um, mayest live. Notice what Moses says that circumcision of the heart produces, a love and a service to the Lord. And when you fast forward into Jesus' day, right, and into the time of the New Testament writings, the, the physical ritual of circumcision itself had become um, more important than the spiritual truth that it taught. And so when John the Baptist comes on the scene, part of the scandal is that he's baptizing Israelites who are circumcised in flesh only, circumcised in body only, and then he's calling them to repent or be circumcised in the heart. And Paul, of course, goes on to major in this um, in the book of Romans. That's why Romans 2 verse 25 says, For circumcision verily or truly profiteth, if you keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. He goes on to say in verse 28, um, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Um, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. This was a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. Right, The cutting away of the flesh is a picture of what the Spirit wants to do in our lives. Warren Wiersbe um, said this. He said the physical operation of the body was meant to be a symbol of the spiritual operation of the heart. Dr. Harry Ironside said before a believer is fit to enter into combat with his spiritual enemies, he needs to use this knife of self-judgment, which, which is the word of God in living power upon his own life. And the reason that Ironside said that is because he would often refer to circumcision as the sharp knife of self-judgment. It's the recognition of these areas in my life that the Holy Spirit has opened my eyes to that need to be cut away. 
Circumcision is going to cause pain. It's going to make them vulnerable. Preparation. Consecration. A time of vulnerability. It's going to require that they trust and they believe and they rely on the Lord. They are recommitting to the covenant promises of God. It's as if God is saying, I'm going to protect you in Canaan. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to give you victory over your enemies over and over and over again repeatedly. But before I fight for you, I want you to bear on your body the mark of the covenant, the promises that we've made with one another. Colossians 2, verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Paul is saying, listen, if you're a Christian, you didn't just cut away a small part of your life. Rather, Christ came into your life. Right? Listen, the flesh is not just literal flesh and bone in the Bible. Right? The flesh is everything that you are apart from Christ. Everything. The bad, but also the things that we think are good. When Jesus comes into your life, he cuts away everything that you used to be and replaces it with himself. That's why Paul wrote in Colossians 3 verse 1, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth, for you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. He goes on to say in verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon this earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate infection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, kill it, put it to death, deprive it, render it unable to operate in your life. That's why he was able to say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. It's not I, but it's Christ that lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith as the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul takes our, metas- our metaphor uh, one step further. Right, listen, it's it's not enough just to cut away a little bit of the flesh. Rather, we need to crucify the old entirely. Crucifixion is painful. I've never been crucified, but I can only imagine. Circumcision to a grown man. That'd be painful. A lot of people want a painless Christianity. Joshua 5, verse 9, The Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you. Wherefore, the name of this place is called Gilgal, and to this day the Lord rolled away the the reproach from Egypt from off them. What does that mean? This is the criticism of the children of Israel that, that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Right, God couldn't really bring them to this place of promise. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. He did the miracles in Egypt, and yeah, yeah, he, he, he kind of he delivered them. But they've been walking around for years and years in disobedience. Whatever kind of God this is, it's not the kind that can bring you into a victorious life, one of abundance. Taking away the reproaches for every person who ever said to you, I thought you were a Christian. Where's the victory in your life? Where's the abundance? 
Where's the grace? Where's the mercy? Where is it in your life that reflects you are any different from me or who you used to be? It's as if the heathen, heathen nations were basically saying to the Israelites, your God isn't really strong enough to take you where he said he's going to take you. Listen, but now they're in the land. Right? God has taken them to that place that he would take them. And this is, this is the invitation that we have as Christians. It's not just about um, being saved and not saved. Although um, you can be sure that being saved is better than not being saved. Right? But there is a big difference between being saved and living a life of abundance and obedience to the Lord. So once we've crossed over, we must circumcise the flesh. Consecration before conquest and worship before warfare. But consider with me my last point. Consider his power to deliver. Joshua 5, verse 10, And the children of Israel encamped to Gilgal, and they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. The Passover was a memorial feast. Do you remember the, the night of the... It was instituted the night that God, um, the, the death angel, went throughout Egypt killing the firstborn, yet it passed over the homes of the Israelites, which were marked by the blood of a spotless lamb, thus sparing them and securing their freedom. That's why Exodus 12 um, in verse 13, it says that the blood shall be for you as a token upon your houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you, to destroy you, and when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it as a feast unto the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. The Passover was a way to remember all that God has done for them. Right? How he provided for them. He spared them. He freed them from bondage and from slavery. Right? Whenever we meet these words in the New Testament, re redeem or redemption, it speaks of freedom of slavery. There was an estimated um, 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at the time the New Testament was written. Thus, when, they, when, when Jewish believers heard these words, they would immediately think of the Passover and Israel's deliverance from Egypt through the blood of the Lamb. See, Isaac's question, if you remember, that he asked his father on the way to that sacrifice, he said, where's the Lamb? It introduces one of the major themes throughout all the Old Testament. Right? As God's people wait for the Messiah, where is the Lamb? And that question is ultimately fulfilled by John the Baptist. You can see it in John 1, verse 29, when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sins of the world. The Passover is a type, a picture for us of Jesus. Right? Of the death of Jesus. A picture of the blood of Jesus. Of the sacrifice of the Lamb. Abundant life and victorious life begins with a new appreciation for what Jesus has done on the cross. Right, the realization that his death on the cross, it not only makes it possible for me, for you to be forgiven of our sins, but it makes it possible for us to be accepted by God. And so it's interesting to note, yet sad, that this would have been only the third time in the last 39 years that they kept the Passover. Obviously, they kept the initial Passover on the night that the Lord delivered them in Exodus 12. 
Then we are told that they celebrated the Passover on Mount Sinai before leaving Kadesh Barnea in Numbers chapter 9. There's no evidence that they commemorated the Passover at any time during the other 39 years of their wilderness wandering. Right? And the fact that this, this new generation hadn't been circumcised, which prevented them from even participating in the, in the Passover, further like validates this truth. No Jewish man could celebrate the Passover unless he was circumcised. Right? God commanded the Israelites, keep the Passover. And yes, it was a memorial, but it was also commanded as part of an opportunity to then teach their children that they were redeemed people set free by the blood of the Lamb. We do well to remember to teach our children the same. There's a connection between the Passover and between the Lord's Supper, right? And in fact, if you remember, it was while Jesus was celebrating his final Passover here on this earth that he instituted the Lord's Supper. And we know that he instituted the Lord's Supper as a memorial as well. That's why when we read about it in the gospel accounts, and then also um, when Paul writes about it, and he's teaching about it in 1 Corinthians 11, um, we are told that uh, Jesus commanded this do in remembrance of me. It's a memorial of everything that he's done. But you know, sadly, it's our lowest attended service. The Lord's Supper is by far our lowest attended service. It's, it's not even close. I don't even, I don't even like need to pull out the roll and count. The Passover was a memorial for Israel's redemption from the bondage of slavery that they suffered in Egypt. And the Lord's Supper, um, it's a memorial, the church's redemption from the heavier bondage, right, of sin and the heavier bondage of Satan. Right, forgetting those things which are behind, as Paul said in Philippians, is wonderful counsel in almost every area of your life. However, there are some things we ought not to ever forget. Joshua 5, verse 10. The children of Israel encamped in Gilgal, and they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna anymore. But they did eat of the fruit of the land of Cana, Canaan that year. The Passover feast was followed by the feast of the unleavened bread, right? And so for a week, they would avoid yeast, right? And eat only unleavened bread. And when they entered into Canaan, it was a time of the barley harvest, right? Thus, grain would have been readily available. Um, and there's no doubt that as they entered in, right, the inhabitants of the land would have fled suddenly, and they would have fled behind the safety of the walls of Jericho. And that grain was now readily available also. Thus the Lord had prepared a table for his people in the presence of their enemies. On the day of the Passover, the manna ceased this ending a 40-year miracle. Bittersweet, no doubt. But if the Passover reminded the Jews of their redemption from Egypt, the manna reminded them of their desire to return. If you remember their complaints from Exodus 16, beginning in verse 3, they said, Would God that we had died! 
the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye brought us forth into the wilderness to kill us in this whole assembly with hunger. God fed his people with the bread of heaven. Literally, the food of angels, we're told in Psalm 78. And yet Numbers 11 tells us that they lusted for the food of Egypt. Perhaps it was easy for God to take his people out of Egypt, but it seemed a bit more difficult to take Egypt out of his people. Listen, a lot of professing Christians contradict their profession by exhibiting an appetite for what belongs in their past. Paul wrote in Colossians 3, verse 1, If then ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth. If you have crossed over the river, you are now in the inheritance. Don't look back. Don't look back on the things of Egypt or from your wilderness. Let God feed you and satisfy you with the harvest of his abundance. Jesus said in John chapter 12 and verse 23, he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Listen, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, if you've never crossed over, if you've never left your old life for the new, why not today? The Bible tells us that we were dead in our sins, literally at enmity with God. Listen, he held back the waters in miraculous fashion, but they were still responsible for crossing over. They still had to have enough faith in God to cross over. If you've not crossed over, if you've never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you've never trusted him with your life and with your eternity, what's stopping you today? The Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It goes on to tell us that there's a wage or a payment for that sin, and the wage is death. Yes, certainly, sin bought physical death in the world, but it's also talking about a spiritual death, an eternity separated from God in a place that the Bible calls hell. But God so loved the world and he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him won't perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came to this earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life. That made him the only worthy sacrifice. He was crucified on a cross. He was buried, so we know he was actually dead. And he rose again on the third day, conquering our wage, our payment, our debt. 
so that we can have eternal life. The Bible tells us, call upon the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved. If you've never crossed over, as we're getting ready to enter into a time of invitation this morning, you've never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, would you call upon in the day? What's stopping you? God will hold back the waters. You just have to have enough faith to cross from a life of death to a life of freedom. But you have to cross over. Would you be willing to call upon him? Right where we're sitting, if I could have all heads bowed. Real quick, you say, Travis, you know what? I want to call upon him. I believe him. I have faith that Jesus is exactly what he said he was. I believe that he died for my sins, Travis, but I, I've never even prayed. I don't even know where to begin. You could say a short, simple prayer right where you're at. Call upon the name of the Lord. You could say, dear God, God, I, I know that I'm a sinner. God, I don't understand it all. I, I don't know it all. But God, I know that I need you. I'd ask you to forgive me of my sins the, the best way that I know how. I ask you to come in and be Lord and Savior of my life. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.